host, Nathan Radke, and with me today is nobody. Uh, it's just me today, hunkering in the bunker. It's a bunker hunker episode. In fact, uh, sitting here surrounded as always by cement walls and Soviet-era guitars, I'm starting to get the uneasy sensation that maybe I'm the only person left on Earth after some kind of apocalyptic catastrophe. But that's a super appropriate and productive way for me to feel right now, because this episode is about doomsday weapons. Uh, as the human capacity for intelligence and problem-solving rapidly outreached the human capacity for wisdom and good decision-making in the 20th and 21st centuries, our clever brains came up with all sorts of devices that could hasten the end of the world as we knew it. But I should start by defining the doomsday device. Certainly our capacity for destruction is inspiring slash whatever the opposite of inspiring is. Uh, despiring? Sounds right. Uh, using old-fashioned bombs, we have leveled entire cities and turned nighttime into daytime with the burning wreckage of neighborhoods and places like Tokyo and Dresden and Coventry. Uh, using even more old-fashioned diseases, we have seen massive human-influenced disasters, such as the, I would say, inappropriately named Great Dying, that took place in America amongst the indigenous population after the first non-Viking contact with Europeans, which resulted in about 10% of the entire world's population suffering an early and unwarranted death. In fact, you could make the argument that one of the worst doomsday devices ever created was the simple revolver and bullet that Gavrilo Princip used to shoot Archduke Ferdinand in the neck in 1914, an act which arguably set in motion not only the First but the Second World War, uh, which resulted in the deaths of approximately 77 million human beings. But here's, here's what I would say about that. It required thousands of bombs to ruin those cities. And while the European settlers may well have weaponized the diseases that spread throughout the Americas, they didn't invent those diseases. And although Gavrilo Princip's gun and bullets did spark the borderline apocalyptic wars of the first half of the 20th century, it was a spark that required an awful lot of pre-existing explosive fuel to have any global impact. What I'm talking about today are those devices that, without requiring any pre-existing conditions or massive collective efforts, bring the world closer to complete annihilation, which means that for the most part we'll be looking at technologies that emerged after World War II, which means that this is mostly another Cold War episode. If you are playing the uncover-up drinking game at home as you listen to this, that means you take two drinks. But before we get to the insidious and organized horror of Cold War logic, let's start in an unusual place, the world of classical music. Alexander Scriabin was born in 1872 in Russia. Like many classical composers, his genius showed up pretty early, and by the time he was a kid, he was organizing the other kids in his town into an all-kid orchestra, which apparently went exactly as well as you would imagine it would. And by the time he was no longer a kid, he was composing big, weird, atonal symphonies that were influenced in part by the concept of synesthesia, a condition in which one's senses meld and bleed into each other to the point that a sound might look purple or uh, a color might smell like lilacs to you. Now, my knowledge of classical music composers is shockingly poor, so I asked Dr. Mark Whale of the Music Listening Project podcast to help me out, and he said this. 
Listening to Scriabin's late piano works is an unsettling experience, not because the music is like a creepy film score, but because one is unable to locate it within a historical musical trajectory. It's a bit like listening to a rock song you know was written in 1960, but sounds at one moment as if it is a popular song from the 1930s, and at the next moment an experimental rock song from 2000. It's both Bing Crosby and Radiohead. When I hear Scrabbin, I think, okay, Schoenberg. No, wait, Chopin. Hang on, it must be Debussy. At one moment, there is a clear home chord. The next, you're lost in a sea of random tones. This is probably why, as a composer, he has had no lasting influence on others. He was just like everyone else, and like no one else. Only when he said it, he said it with an English accent, so it sounded classier. At the dawn of the 20th century, Scrabin started working on his most ambitious musical work, titled Mysterium, and which is playing in the background right now. Mysterium wasn't just some run-of-the-mill bit of classical music either. Uh, the performers would include a full orchestra, a large choir, some kind of device that would create visual effects, another device that would pump incense into the air, uh, there'd be dancers, uh, there'd be a parade. It was meant to be conducted in a cathedral at the foothills of the Himalayan mountains, and it would take an entire week to perform. In addition, there would be no audience. Anybody nearby would have to participate in it. And the grand finale, after 168 hours of performance, would be the end of the world. This symphony wasn't just a musical experience. This symphony was designed as a doomsday device. Scrabin was trying to end the world with this symphony. He thought that it would be so majestic that the world would collapse in on itself and we would be reborn into a new and better place. Uh, sadly, before he could finish the symphony, he succumbed to sepsis, which is a kind of very localized apocalypse that takes place in an individual's blood. I say sadly, not because I wanted the world to end, or because I thought that the world would end if he had finished the symphony, uh, but because here was an example of a person who had an immense talent for creativity, and he directed it towards something interesting and artistic. In direct contrast to the masterminds behind the rest of our collection of doomsday devices, which I will now get to. Starting with a device that two of its fathers, Enrico Fermi and Isidore Rabi, referred to as, and I quote them directly here, an evil thing. Fermi and Rabi were both nuclear physicists who had worked on the Manhattan Project that had created the world's first atomic bombs, which we then proceeded to use to vaporize two cities and turn tens of thousands of human beings into ash and shadows. So these guys were not new to the doomsday weapon game, but as horrifying as the A-bombs that incinerated Hiroshima and Nagasaki were, in the winter of 1954, we unlocked a whole new level of destruction when we detonated the first ever hydrogen bomb on the Bikini Atoll. First, a brief discussion on how a nuclear explosion works is probably useful. The famous equation that allowed us to harness nuclear power is, of course, Albert Einstein's classic jam, E equals mc square. But what that actually means is sort of astounding when you, when you actually work it out. E refers to energy, measured in joules, M refers to mass, measured in kilograms, and C refers to the speed of light in meters per second. Now, because the speed of light in meters per second is about 300 million, 
That means that whatever number you plug in as m, you're going to get a massive amount of energy from mass. Uh, for example, I figured this out. I weigh about 81 kilograms. That translates to about 7.3 septillion joules of energy, which translates to about 1.7 million kilotons of TNT. Now, the bomb that destroyed Hiroshima only released 16 kilotons of TNT. When you look at it that way, I am a potential doomsday weapon. Of course, the trick is harnessing that energy. My 81 kilograms of molecules are fairly stable, and they're not really that interested in giving up their energy. That's why the Hiroshima bomb used uranium-235, which is a fairly unstable isotope and therefore easier to coax into splitting. And when one big U-235 nucleus splits into two smaller particles, that's when the energy is released and the radiation is released. In addition, if there are any other U-235 nuclei around, they might get hit by a bit of the split atom and split themselves, releasing more energy and particles and causing other U-235 nuclei to split, releasing their energy and their particles and so on, and it's this chain reaction that causes the massive explosion and also causes the mushroom cloud that haunted my childhood whenever I pictured one showing up somewhere on the horizon. But the ability to destroy an entire city in seconds wasn't enough for a creature as clever as we are. It must have been driving us to distraction thinking of all of that untapped, unexploded energy just sitting around in atoms all around us all the time. So we figured out a way to cause a fusion reaction with a fission explosion. Fission is splitting heavy atoms, like uranium, whereas fusion is joining up lighter atoms, like helium or hydrogen. It's basically what the sun is doing constantly. So making a fusion explosion is like bringing a little bit of the sun down here to Earth. And this device, this, this hydrogen bomb, is the thing that Fermi and Rabi referred to as an evil thing. In part because the amount of energy released by an H-bomb can be over 100 times more than that from the sort of A-bomb that was already powerful enough to destroy Hiroshima. But there was another reason that the H-bomb was so terrifying, and that has to do with the nature of chain reactions. The H-bomb operates similar to an A-bomb in that it requires billions of small reactions to generate the explosion. You can only get that, that many reactions in such a short period of time through a chain reaction. In an A-bomb, the chain reaction continues until the fuel is used up, and then your explosion stops. But some of the scientists working on the H-bomb were concerned about something. The fuel that is being fused and releasing energy is hydrogen. But our atmosphere is absolutely lousy with hydrogen. What if the chain reaction that causes the explosion started a larger chain reaction in the hydrogen in the atmosphere? Is it possible that the world's air would turn into a massive bomb, and the entire Earth would be scorched to a crisp? Well, according to their equations, the answer was probably not, but maybe. And here's the thing. There's only one way to find out for sure. That's why on March 1st, 1954, a group of American scientists were gathered on the Bikini Atoll, a tiny little island in the Pacific Ocean, waiting to find out if they were about to set the air on fire. They had run the numbers many, many times. They were reasonably confident that the H-bomb they were about to detonate from their cement bunker 20 miles away would be the largest explosion ever created by humans, but they didn't think it would end all life on Earth as we know it. But here's the thing. They had their numbers wrong. Wearing thick goggles and standing behind thicker glass and cement, the scientists watched as the H-bomb successfully exploded. According to Barney O'Keefe, one of the observers, the x-rays thrown off by the blast caused the faces of the scientists to become momentarily see-through. O'Keefe later said, In front of me, they were skeletons. 
their faces no longer appeared to be human faces, just jawbones and eye sockets, rows of teeth, skulls. But unlike most moments in which being surrounded by skulls would be scary, for them, being surrounded by skulls was not the scariest thing that they were seeing. Because here's the thing, they had figured out how big the mushroom cloud should get. And based on the material that was in the bomb, they had estimated that it should get no larger than 20 miles wide. And so the explosion went off, the mushroom cloud went up, 10 miles wide, 15 miles wide, 18 miles wide, 20 miles wide. It was as large as they had predicted. But then it was 22 miles wide, and then 25, and then 30, and then 40 miles wide. And at this point, they asked themselves the question, have we just set the air on fire? Have we just ended the world? Now, as it turned out, obviously because you're listening to this right now, the chain reaction had not spread to the atmosphere. But the scientists had underestimated how large the explosion would be. In fact, it ended up having about 250 times more power than they had calculated. The people in the bunker had to be immediately evacuated by helicopters before they died of radiation sickness, and several inhabited nearby islands ended up in the path of the deadly radioactive fallout cloud, as did a small Japanese fishing trawler named the Lucky Dragon No. 8, which resulted in the poisoning of the crew with radiation and the death of the radio operator. Two bits of historical trivia at this point. One, the man who designed the bikini bathing suit did in fact name it after the island where this test was done, and the poisoning of the Lucky Dragon was the incident that inspired the first Godzilla movie, which I maintain is a fantastic film. The blast that happened at the Bikini Atoll that day was unimaginable in scope. When you look at footage of it, as I have been doing for the last few days, it looks, it looks unreal. It's too large, it's too bright, it's too destructive for me to properly get my mind around. But we don't have time for me to try to get my mind around it, because now it's time to move forward seven years to 1961, and now we're going to talk about an event that made the Bikini Atoll explosion look like a sneeze. The Soviets had noticed the Bikini Atoll explosion, of course, partly because the American government had wanted them to. I mean, that's one of the reasons you're setting off these explosions. If you're the American government, you're setting off explosions to show off to the Soviet government, and then the Soviet sets off explosions to show off, and so on and so forth. The other reason that they knew about the Bikini Atoll explosion is that the radioactive particles that the explosion had released traveled all of the way around the world. Faced with this unimaginable horror, the Kremlin immediately started trying to imagine a more unimaginable one. The resulting device was named Zarbama, and it was ridiculous. On October 30th, 1961, a Russian Tu-95 bomber painted in special reflective white paint took off from an airfield in northwest Russia. Its bomb bay doors had been removed to allow the plane to carry a massive 27-ton bomb into the sky. The bomb was attached to a parachute to slow its descent to the blast height. This was done to give the chance, just the chance, for the plane and its crew to get far enough away to avoid being consumed by the resulting fireball. The white paint was there to try to bounce off as much heat as possible to keep the equipment in the plane and the organs in the crew from being destroyed in the explosion. Despite the parachute and the paint, the crew was only given a 50% chance of surviving this test run. The plane with its absurd and ridiculous payload flew northeast for two hours, and then it dropped it from a height of about 34,000 feet, at which point the pilot gave all engines full throttle in an attempt to escape the small sun that was about to be birthed in the Russian sky. 
They had gotten about 25 miles away when a massive shockwave rocked the aircraft and it lost lift and dropped about 3,200 feet in a few seconds before the pilot was able to gain control again. But the real destruction was happening behind the plane. The fireball that Zarbama created was about five miles wide. Just the fireball was five miles wide. It lit up the sky for 600 miles. The mushroom cloud was 42 miles high, or about seven times the height of Mount Everest. 34 miles away, every building in the town of Severny was leveled by the shockwave. Hundreds of miles from ground zero, windows were smashed, roofs were caved in. Here's a quotation from one of the Soviet observers, and I'm going to bring Skriabin back for this one as well. The clouds beneath the aircraft and in the distance were lit up by the powerful flash. The sea of light spread under the hatch, and even clouds began to glow and become transparent. At that moment, our aircraft emerged from between two cloud layers, and down below in the gap, a huge bright orange ball was emerging. The ball was powerful and arrogant like Jupiter. Slowly and silently, it crept upwards. Having broken through the thick layer of clouds, it kept growing. It seemed to suck the whole Earth into it. The spectacle was fantastic, unreal, supernatural. The blast wave from the explosion circled the Earth three times before it exhausted itself. The American H-bomb had been over twice as powerful as every explosion in Germany and Japan during World War II combined. But Tsar Bomba was five times again as powerful as that. It ended up being over 50 megatons. And the Soviets had plans for another one that would be twice as powerful as that one. Now, I've been running some simulations using the amazing website nuclearsecrecy.com backslash nukemap. And what this website allows you to do is to see what the effect of different sizes of nuclear bombs would have on different areas. And so, of course, the first thing I did was to see what would happen if I detonated a bomb the size of Zarbama over the bunker here in Little Tibet in Toronto. So, obviously, the city of Toronto would be evaporated in a massive fireball. But the shock and heat waves would also destroy the cities of Brampton, Mississauga, Burlington, Hamilton, Newmarket, and Oshawa. Then what I did, because I was really getting into this, was I moved the blast center around to some of the cities where I know we have a pile of listeners. So if I've missed your city, I, I apologize. But I urge you, you can go to this website and drop a bomb on your own city and see what would happen. Uh, but for all of you Dallas listeners... Obviously, Dallas is gone, but so is Arlington, Frisco, Denton, McKinney, and Fort Worth. Hello to listeners in Atlanta, but say goodbye to Sandy Springs, Stonecrest, Peachtree City, and Covington. Seattle, I love your city. It's one of my favorite places to visit. But if Zarbama went off, uh, it would stretch basically from Lake Cushman to Skykomish. Hi to all of our listeners in Copenhagen, of which there are a surprising amount, but I am sorry to tell you that everything from Ringsted to Klippen is going to be a smoking ruin. But if the Soviets thought they had created the most absurd and destructive weapon possible, the American government was about to say, hold my radioactive beer, because the American government was already busy working on Project Pluto. Sure, it's all fine and dandy to create a massive bomb capable of leveling entire metropolitan areas, but there's a problem. Specifically, to get the bomb to the city you want to destroy, you need to hang it underneath a bomber. And that bomber is vulnerable to mechanical failure, getting shot down, or even uh, the possibility that the pilot decides he or she doesn't want to kill millions of people and turns back. So what's a country to do? 
Well, if you're the United States in the early 1960s, you start work on one of the most bonkers plans of all time. Project Pluto was the answer to the question, hey, how can we turn the skies more terrifying? Addressing the problem of getting a manned bomber through enemy defenses, the American government abandoned the human components and designed a supersonic low-altitude missile, or SLAM, or SLAM, which is my third favorite acronym after MAD and MANIAC. Uh, This might seem fairly old hat, this idea of a a super-fast, low-flying missile in an age of tomahawk guided missiles and drones and stuff like that. But Project Pluto was a different beast than the cruise missiles we have today. Uh, For one thing, it didn't have a warhead in the nose, and it had a nuclear-powered engine. The American Air Force had been trying to develop a nuclear-powered manned bomber for a while, with the idea that it wouldn't have to refuel for weeks and could simply fly around in a state of complete readiness in case a war broke out. Even if there was a first strike by the Soviets and all American bases were destroyed, if there were a few nuclear-powered bombers just circling around the globe, they could still strike back with lethal force. The problem was, nuclear power plants require a lot of shielding to protect the soft human bits from dangerous radiation. And since heavy lead, which is what you use in that shielding, is rarely the kind of material you want to build an airplane out of, the nuclear-powered manned bomber idea was scrapped, although not until after they had actually stuck a working nuclear power plant in a B-36 and flown it around a bit. But if you take the human beings out, you don't need as much shielding. Project Pluto was designed with a nuclear-powered ramjet engine that used the tremendous heat generated by a nuclear reaction to warm cold air coming in the front of the missile, causing the air to quickly expand out the back of the engine, propelling the missile forward at tremendous speed. How tremendous? Three times the speed of sound tremendous. At that speed, and only flying a few hundred feet above the ground, it would be virtually impossible to shoot it down or to intercept it. Not only that, but with a nuclear engine, it could have had enough fuel to fly around for months at that speed. Now, at that speed and at that height, anything it flew over would be damaged or destroyed by the immense shockwave caused by the supersonic missile passing overhead. Also, the nuclear engine would be poisoning anything it flew over with deadly radiation. Also, it would be 88 feet long and filled with nuclear bombs, which it would be dropping all over the countryside of enemy countries. Rarely has the ratio between intelligence and wisdom been this skewed. The technical know-how to create this thing was astounding and in a and like I'm extremely impressed by it. Even to make the necessary materials to build the body of the missile that would be able to hold up to the intense pressures and temperatures that 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 flying at that speed would cause, I mean, they needed to develop brand new building processes. Uh, creating a nuclear power plant that was powerful enough to achieve the desired speed while still being light enough to fit in the slender missile body was a delicate balancing act. Keeping the electronics shielded from the deadly radioactive core was almost impossible. This work that the engineers and physicists did was amazing. It was almost superhuman. I'm very impressed with us right now in our intelligence. But while intelligence allows us to build something like this, wisdom asks the question, wait, do we want to build something like this? I mean, humans may be squishy and vulnerable to radiation, but they can also be reasoned with. What would happen if one of these missiles went wrong? If it was accidentally fired off, and with 1960s-era electronics, this was a definite possibility, and it started flying around your own country, like, it would crush everything it flew over with a massive shockwave. It would lead behind deadly radiation, and it would drop the occasional thermonuclear bomb on you. For months! For that matter, what if it went right? 
Just one of these devices could have killed tens of millions of people and rendered entire sections of the planet uninhabitable for generations. In the end, the American government canceled the project, not because it was clearly a terrible idea, but because new developments in intercontinental ballistic missiles and submarines meant that it was no longer necessary as a second strike weapon. You could keep your missiles safely locked away at the bottom of the ocean in a submarine rather than flying around the earth leaking radiation. Now, somehow, and it must have been some kind of combination of some people making reasonable decisions, some cooler heads prevailing in dangerous situations, and, to be honest, a ton of luck. We survived the Cold War relatively intact. However, we're not out of the woods yet, uh, doomsday weapon-wise. There are still stockpiles of deadly viruses and pathogens in vaults in Russia and the United States, and I'm sure other countries have them as well. The total nuclear weapon stockpile is still more than enough to destroy the entire world several times. And then, let's look at the modern day. Let's look at the events of August 9th, 2019. In the ocean near the city of Severodvinsk, which I'm sure I pronounced incorrectly, uh, it's not too far away from where in 1961 that Tu-95 took off with Zarbama slung under its belly. There was a massive nuclear explosion. Five Russian weapon scientists were killed outright, and several workers were sent to local hospitals with radiation sickness. It seems as though the medical staff at the hospital weren't warned about the cause of this sickness, though, because several medical personnel also developed radiation sickness from treating these workers. Radiation levels peaked at about 14 times the usual amount in the general area of the explosion. A few days later, two damaged and radioactive barges drifted ashore carrying the wrecked remains of heavy equipment. And the most likely explanation for all of this is that the Russian government was testing a 9M730 Bervesnik, a nuclear-powered missile similar to Project Pluto, and it crashed into the ocean. To end this episode, I want to briefly talk about a French theorist for a moment. Georges Bataille wrote a book in the late 1940s, which I think maybe shed some light on this tendency of the human to create these weapons that are clearly too destructive to ever be used in anything other than an apocalyptic situation. The book was titled La Pau Maudite, or in English, The Accursed Share. Uh, in it, he describes the situation in which unhindered economic growth creates a situation in which production vastly outstrips demand, and you end up with an overabundance of goods and wealth. Basically, you, you make too much stuff. Uh, this overabundance threatens the very concept of value, as value without scarcity is impossible. So how do we respond to this, this crisis of overabundance? Bataille argues that what we should do is a kind of potlatch. This is a, a gift-giving feast that has been practiced by indigenous people in the Pacific Northwest, uh, despite attempts by colonial authorities to ban the festivals as anti-capitalist and anti-Christian. The idea behind the potlatch is this. The leaders of your society can demonstrate their wealth and power not by trying to hold on to as much as they can their own possessions, but by giving them away to other people. Now, Bataille argues that if we don't expend our excesses in a massive party of generosity, or some kind of ridiculous artistic celebration, or just in runaway hedonism, if we don't do these things, we're going to spend them somewhere else. And what he worries about is that we risk expending those same excesses not in a massive party, but in war and destruction. 
And I wonder sometimes, when I think about our attitudes towards the future, I wonder if we don't... I wonder if we don't see the future as a kind of accursed share in itself, something that we have too much of. I mean, the years stretch ahead of us, possibly infinitely. Looking into the future is like standing on the edge of a massive cliff, or staring into the endless night sky. Is it possible that our tendency to create doomsday weapons is a reaction to the nausea and motion sickness we get when we consider the vastness of the future? There's just too many years for us to imagine. Maybe we need to reconsider our concepts of value, though. Instead of trying to burn off our excess years in a massive display of destruction, maybe we could demonstrate our wealth and power by gifting those future years away to the people and the other beings who will come after us, rather than trying to burn them all away ourselves. Well, we'll be back in the new year with more podcasts, including the long-promised CastroCast, In the meantime, you can prove to me that I'm not the last person on Earth by emailing us at podcast at theuncoverup.com or following us on Instagram at theuncoverup, and then you'll see pictures of the bunker, pictures of our little green alien mascot, and pictures of us, which will make you say, ah, that's not what I thought they would look like.